Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is David Crosby, who's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, once with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and then again with The Birds. A 2019 documentary, Remember My Name, is a moving look back at his career. Welcome, David. Hiya. One of your more endearing character traits is your BS detector. And as a fan, I've always associated that to a degree to your upbringing. Your father was in the Hollywood community. He was a noted cinematographer, won an Academy Award back in the 30s. So show business, the entertainment industry, has never had a special mystique to you. I have always challenged authority. So the society that I grew up into naturally was going to get challenged. Hollywood is so perfectly built to be challenged. My dad was not a Hollywood person. My dad, when he got his Oscar, one of the first ones that they gave out for a silent movie called Taboo, he used it for doorstop. <laughs> they were not valuable yet. He got a Golden Globe later on for shooting High Noon. And even then, he still put it somewhere in the bathroom. I don't think he was very impressed with Hollywood, and I think that did translate to me. I have never been very impressed with show business. It's not that I dislike show business. I just think it puts the focus in the wrong place. Too much on show and way too much on business. Let's get you to Colorado. You spent a winter living on the hill in Boulder. In the 50s and 60s, University Hill was the epicenter for youth culture, the sink, Tulagi, legendary 3-2 bar emporiums for the college crowd. You were a teen, early 20s? Somewhere in there, yeah. I had started out singing in coffee houses. And this was me leaving home and leaving school and just deciding that this was what I wanted to do. I think the first place I went was Arizona. And then I got a ride here. I was on my way to New York. I'd heard that there was a place here, and I'd called and talked to a weird little guy. Uh, you know that little triangular block up on the hill? It's a massage parlor or something now. But underneath it, there was a grubby little basement, and there was a coffee house there called The Attic because it was in the basement. <laughs> Hippies. <laughs> and I worked there for a winter. Very educational. Freezing your ass off? Definitely freezing day. your ass off. Okay. I had a war surplus overcoat, and I think I had a sweater on top of my T-shirt. That was it. It was grim. <laughs> it was grim, but there were girls. And that sort of made it up for everything. Is it true that that is where you smoked your first joint? No. But when I was able to get it here... There was a really nice Japanese girl who had some, and I smoked it all up. After your stint with the Birds, your first Hall of Fame band, you formed Crosby, Stills & Nash with Stephen and Graham. Decades of legendary music and tumultuous interpersonal relationships followed. <laughs> of all the fights, you won the biggest and the very first one without doing anything. When it came time to choose a band name, you recused yourself. You could try saying it any other way. 
Try it. Anyway, Crosby, Stills, Nash. Uh, try saying Stills, Nash, Crosby. No. Try Nash, Crosby, Stills. No. No. Nash, Stills, Crosby. Couldn't work. Doesn't work. Dunka, dunka, dun. Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Dunka, dunka. It's like so simple. I figured it out. And I just said, you guys deal with it. And I left. I knew it was going to happen. And I knew they would try it every other way because <laughs> Stills wanted his name first. Uh, he always wanted to be the leader. And, of course, I would never let anybody be a leader. Crosby, Stills, and Nash famously played their second gig at Woodstock, then Neil Young. Well, Neil was there. What happened at Woodstock was a lot of the people, upon being told that the filmmakers could not pay, could not agree to pay cash, because we were being paid a pittance to play the concert, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young got like $5,000, which is not enough to cover our catering bill. Neil along with Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and a bunch of other people, said, hey, don't pay us, you don't get it. So they weren't in the movie, short-sighted. It was a bet. I was willing to bet that the movie was going to be good. They were not, so they weren't in the movie. My song started the movie. <laughs> it's been a After the Deja Vu album with Neil, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young began a tour in April 1970 at the Denver Coliseum. Your bandmates and some fans remember a rather tense show. Stephen hobbled on stage, he had hurt himself, and the entire tour got blown off shortly thereafter. Do you have any recollection of what was going on? No. No? <laughs> your Honor, I don't remember. I don't know why. Because there was smoke in the air. I don't know. There was so much money on the table, I'm sure that it got fixed quickly. Let's jump ahead to 1974 then, when Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young reassembled. This was the stadium tour, arguably the very first one. There had been big stadium shows that were one-offs, but Denver, Mile High Stadium, was part of this groundbreaking tour. Promoters were just starting to exploit the capacity of stadiums on a grand scale, doing it in dozens of cities, not just one. And so you accordingly played three-and-a-half-hour sets, but I always thought that as a performer that had to be a new challenge, not only to connect but to hear yourself. No, the hard part was keeping it down to that. There's two ways to approach bands. You can be a cooperative effort or a competitive effort. CSNY was definitely competitive effort. We were always competing with each other the entire time. So if Stephen sang a new song, that meant I got to sing a new song, and Graham got to sing a new song, and Neil... And Neil, of course, would have three. So when Neil sang his three, then we each got to sing two more. <laughs> it's kind of like You've played Red Rocks a multitude of times. Sitting in with Joni at Red Rocks was your first stop there. You have tirelessly proselytized for our favorite outdoor venue over the years. It's my favorite outdoor gig. It'll give it that. And I think it deserves it. It's a beautiful place. It's gotten a little corporatized. I don't have to deal with that. For me, it's just a place to play. And the audience is spectacular. That's as good as you're going to get. 
and it's a beautiful place. So that's a double win. Every time that I've played there, it's been fun. Your place is assured in the annals of great harmony singers of the rock generation in a classic three-part harmony arrangement. Doesn't matter if it was the Birds or CSN or all the other configurations. Someone takes the melody, someone takes the high harmony, and then you do all of this interesting, weird, some would say batshit crazy stuff in the middle that gives it that amazing texture. Jazz voicings that started on guitar and we can't get into portal and quintal harmonies or fourths and fifths, but all that aside, can you discuss it in terms of how much of it is math, if you will, theory, and how much of it is feel and gut? It's a lot, gut. It sets up emotional context. You enter this thing with a set of words, that's a story you're trying to tell. The music is emotional context. It's the ring you put the diamond in. And you can shape how people are gonna feel a lot by the kind of harmony that you use. Two different things in Birds and CSM. Birds was really two-part, which gave me a lot of room to move around in the top. I could be on the third or the fifth or the seventh or the sixth, and it could be anywhere, and I could change relationships to the melody, creating tension and release. I had more freedom in the Birds because of that. In CSM, it's always at least three parts. And Nash is so good at doing the top, and he was an excellent harmony singer. In the space that I had in between the melody and the high harmony, and we did switch around. Now, a lot of times I'd sing the melody, Stephen would sing a harmony underneath me, Graham would go over me, or I would swap high part with Graham. We didn't always do it the same way. But I like complex relationships. That's how you get the emotion in the chord. You don't sing the expected triad. I've managed to actually change the use of the word triad. That'd be proud. <laughs> well, it always meant a three-note chord, and now it includes also menage à trois, and that's fine with me. I modified the language a little. I'm happy. It's great to contribute something yeah, to the lexicon. Yeah, something. Account, I right? needed to contribute something somewhere, at least once. You're crazy, too. I don't really see why can't we go on. I always had Hero in that category. Over the years, it's been seen as a more commercial record than an artistic one, but working with Phil Collins, there's all sorts of stuff going on harmonically for a top 40 single. Right? Yeah, and at that, we simplified it some. Phil's good. He's a real good singer. And he likes doing harmony tricks, which is what brought him to me. He liked my first solo record. We sort of got to be friends, and I said, hey, let's write a song together. I had a set of words, and then I had this bad motorcycle wreck, and he was pretty kind. He came over to visit to see if I was going to make it. He wrote the music to the set of words, and yeah, it was kind of a pop record because he's kind of a pop guy. Yeah. That's what he does, commercial records. But it's not a dirty word if you do it well enough. McCartney's a pop record, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Pretty damn good one. <laughs> and the reason that she loved you There's been a duality to your career. You've carved a legendary musical path, but you've also navigated the cult here he goes, here he goes. celebrity. This is when it starts. Making news for things non-musical <laughs> on the cover of Rolling Stone and People magazine. 
Oh, God. I think I read somewhere that you gave Melissa Etheridge your liver or something. (laughs) (laughs) Tell that to Melissa. (laughs) No, it's a good story, though. Melissa and her significant other, Julie Seifer, were in Hawaii at the same time we were, and they visited us at this beach house that a friend of ours loaned us. And this is when our kid, Django, was very young. He was three, maybe four, something like that. He was a spectacular child. And they saw him and they said, oh, God, how do you get one of those? And I refrained from the usual joke. Normally I would have been crude, but they had gone through some pain about it. Some people just are weird about gay people and didn't think that they should have children would throw roadblocks in their path. To me, I just don't give a damn about the plumbing. I care about the hearts. I don't care what sex you are or what sex your partner is or what you do. I don't even want to know. It's your business. I care about you love each other. They did. So they said, how do we get one of those? And Jan pointed at me. And I said, yeah. And went along with it. But it was Jan's generosity that caused the two children that wound up happening. And they are spectacular kids, mm-hmm. both of them. But that became news, a headline, as well as many other things. So was it all part of the ride, or was there a specific point where Cross the musician had to reconcile that development that your private life was now and forever going to be so public? It has been all the way along. Yeah. It has been ever since birth. And it's really a very difficult thing. It's totally great when you've just put out a record and it goes to number one. You love being in the public eye. Nothing more fun. It's absolutely a peach. When you make major mistakes in the public eye and you have to live with them, that's no fun at all. It's educational. It's no fun. (laughs) Been working on educating myself. (laughs) It's been difficult. I wanted to touch on the acting thing. Early 90s, you appeared in several sitcoms. I remember Roseanne and Ellen. You had to bring up Roseanne. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. My, my favorite bit of acting was your voice work on The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> Guest starring as yourself. And for me, it put to rest those stigmas you allude to. Homer's Barbershop Quartet was one episode featuring the B-Sharps, which was Homer's band. Their career paralleled that of the Beatles. That was the conceit. And you presented them with a Grammy Award for Outstanding Soul, Spoken Word, or Barbershop Quartet Album of the Year. <laughs> And you handed it to Barney Gumble, Springfield's town drunk, Homer's best friend. Congratulations! David Crosby, you're my hero! Oh, you like my music? You're a musician? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great joke, but it was the ultimate forum for you to be able to laugh at yourself. You I think that's the only healthy thing to do, man. If you have an ego as big as mine, the only thing you can do to live with it is make fun of it as often as possible. I do it all day, every day. I make fun of myself constantly because it's the only thing that keeps it even vaguely in check. It's a survival technique. In 2011... You in Nashville and Colorado, you delivered the closing plenary address called Life Matters up at CU, the Conference on World Affairs. You're pretty outspoken politically. You've got to be apoplectic these days. It's a bitch. On a very serious level, I'm struggling to keep my head above water. It's easy to dismiss the guy because he's such an idiot. He's like an eight-year-old who's broken into his dad's office. He's never allowed in there, so now he's peeing at all the papers. I'll show them. But he's doing great harm. 
And it's not just to the Constitution. It's not just to our democracy. Every moment that we, as the world leader, do not address global warming, we are doing harm, actual harm, to every other human being on the planet, all of them. Karmically, that's not a real smart move. But in terms of our survival, it's disastrous. Where we are right now, we may not be able to pull out. We are in a nosedive. And we are pulling back on the stick, trying to get the airplane to pull them up. But we've got a co-pilot who's pushing forward on the stick saying, fuck it, this shit's bullshit. It's fine. It's fine. The airplane's fine. And he doesn't know how to fly. We're in a dangerous situation. I'm old, and I believed in democracy. I always did. I always thought democracy was a really good idea. And I wish we still had one. I believe in it. I think it's the best way for us to live together under the rule of law. I like it. I'll fight for it. But what we got right now is greedy children, amoral, greedy children running the country and ripping off everything they can lay their hands on in the process, which was their goal in the first place. They didn't want to sign up to run the country. How do we get to here? A lot of really evil people in Congress. How did we get all these evil people in Congress? We got them because a long time ago, the companies started making so much money that they could afford to buy Congress, and they did. It costs so much to win an election now that the big payers, the Koch brothers, can step in and say, hey, here's 10 million bucks. Do what I tell you. And when they call them back up, they say, hey, quarterly report's down. Need a war. A war. That senator says, what time? If they told him to shit, he'd ask him what color. He's going to do whatever the hell they say because he wants that $10 million again. And he's going to get it he does exactly what they say. That's the reality. That's what we're dealing with. So to fix it, all the fixes I know about have to go through Congress. Oops. Whether you're going to have a democracy in this country 10 years from now is questionable. We all need to think about that. What are you handing your kids? All the kids I know are pissed at you and me because they think we're handing them the short end of the deal. And they're right. We are handing them a broken democracy in a fucked up planet. That disturbs me a great deal. Seagulls circle endlessly. I sing in silent harmony. We shall be free. You're in Colorado. We have to talk about pot. We sat on the tour bus in the late 80s, and I was dazzled by your authority about not just the aesthetics of pot, but the science. You knew about the various strains, the botany of the cannabis plant, even cannabinoids. You mentioned CBD, and I thought you were starting a new band with Jackson Brown and Bob <laughs> Dylan, you know? <laughs> but you wrapped up that incredible dissertation at the time by saying, but I can't smoke it. I take one puff, I'd smoke the whole bag. That's just the way I'm wired. Things have changed in the ensuing decades. That was me being sober. So, For the 14 years, 14 and a half years that I was sober, I was completely sober. I did not smoke it. I didn't feel that I had the room to do that. 
It's an interesting phenomenon about addicts. We have a certain kind of dream. It's called a slip dream. Most people don't know about it, but anybody who's been addicted or been a drunk will tell you about it. It's a dream where you dream that you used. You've gotten straight now, and you're trying to stay sober, and you're going to meetings, and you wake up in the middle of the night, oh, I did it, because you dreamt you were just about to put that torch in that pipe, and you got it right to your mouth, and then you woke up. Oh, fuck, I, I, I did it, I blew it, I fucked it. Oh, no, I didn't, it was a dream. Oh, shit, okay. They happen repeatedly. They happen all the time. Oh, I drank. Oh, I used. Slip dream. When they stop, which took years, bullshit on your getting straight in six weeks, took years, many years. I was sober for 14 and a half years. About 10 years into that, they stopped. That's when you know it's not snapping at your heels anymore. Four years more I gave it. Felt comfortable with smoking pot. I still do. I feel no urge to do any other drugs of any kind at any time. If you laid out a line right there, there would be a smoking David-shaped hole in that wall. <laughs> All fairness, I'm scared shitless of it, and I should be. And I think everybody else should be too. Hard drugs are just totally destroyers. But smoking pot, I think, is pretty okay. Human beings love to get loaded. We love it. That's why we invented distilling and fermenting and tried every little fruit and berry in the jungle to see if, hmm, visions. Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> visions. I like this. Or just we, twirling around. Dervishes. They get high from spinning like that. They you do it for a couple hours. Get a little loopy. That's human beings. Okay, I'm good with that. We want to get loaded, have a beer, glass of wine? I don't think it hurts a damn thing. We could use a little grease. Sometimes the axle is kind of squeaky here. The situation we're in now is this. It's going to be legal in the whole country and very much sooner than anybody knows. Why? Not for the right reason. The right reason is it should be legal because it's the same as beer and wine. And it doesn't hurt anybody. The reason it's going to be money. The numbers on Colorado and Oregon are in. It's no longer a theory. Here's what's going on in this country. Right now, we have a very, very bad federal government, and they are cutting off the kinds of money that normally trickle down from the federal government into state governments to be distributed for social programs. Well, this federal government doesn't like doing that. They don't like giving you money for poor people or black people or brown people or any other people than rich, fat, white guys. So that money's getting scarce, and the states are hurting. And they look at Colorado, who can build a school or a road or a hospital tomorrow, anytime they decide to, thank you very much, because of pot, because of the tax money. And because of that, it's going to be legal. It's going to be legal in every state in the union right now, because they all need it. States that don't even want to do it are going to do it. Alabama going to do it. Georgia's going to do it. Texas is going to definitely do it. Because they need the goddamn money. Desperately. So that's a good thing to me. Remember in the 50s when there were 40 car companies? Those companies ate each other, screwed each other, bought each other, ran each other over, murdered each other, kidnapped each other, <laughs> became three car companies. 
Same thing's going to happen with pot companies. Right now, it's the Wild West. There's a thousand pot companies. One or two of them or ten of them are going to evolve and emerge from this fray. And I would like very much to rent, sell, or lease my name and face to them because, and this is kind of convoluted, I need the money. Why do I need the money? I need the money because a weird thing happened. I used to get paid for records, and now I don't. It's called streaming. They don't pay us. Oh, well, they do pay us. It's as if you worked for three weeks at your job, whatever your job is, and they give you a nickel. Micro pennies. Micro pennies. Tiny. Point zero 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 four of a dollar. Uh, I would like you to look up the numbers because if I tell them to you, you will not fucking believe them. They're not just insulting, they're cruel. And these guys are making billions of dollars off of our music. The three major companies are making, off of streaming, $19 million a day. And if you look at the total numbers for a year, you won't like these people. What happened is they invented new technology and they went to the big record companies and they said, we need a whole different pay structure. We want you to pay the artists a whole shitload less. And the record company said, no problem. We'll give you a pay structure where you can make billions of dollars with a B. All you have to do is give us a piece of your company. And they did. And that money goes right around all the artists. We don't get any piece of it. And that's not how it's supposed to be because we make the music that they are making the money off of. It's not right, and it's what happened. I had to leave CSN, or it would have spoiled music for me. We didn't like each other, and we were not having any fun. So that cut me income in half. Then the streaming thing happened, cut it half again. I'm to the point now where I'm trying to hang on to my house. I'm working at 77 more than I did when I was 57 because I need to to keep my home. It's that simple. And I think it's worse, and this bugs me even more than my own having to face it, the young people that I know, and I'm in bands with young people, really talented ones, they're still at the stage when it would have made a huge difference in their being able to establish themselves and have a career if they could sell records and make money, and they can't. The only place they can make any money with the records is the 15 of them that they sold after the show, physically. It's so screwed up that I don't make enough money off of a record to be able to go into the studio and make another one. Last time I went in the studio, a friend of mine bought me a month of studio time as a kindness. I don't think it's supposed to work like that. That's why I'm trying to sell my name to the pot companies. Convoluted story. But that's why. It's because they don't pay me for records anymore. I'm going to make another record. I've made four records in four years, and I'm going to make another one. But it's because that's what I leave behind. Not because I'm going to get paid for it. Remember My Name is a documentary that rightfully chronicles your mindset at this stage of your life. 
Most artists are tortured about where the next song is coming from. You're more prolific now than arguably any other point of your life. I and, love uh, it, and I love writing. It's like a joy. Here's how it goes at my house. We make dinner together. We eat dinner together. Then I go in the bedroom, and I build a fire. We have a fireplace in the bedroom. Beautiful. And then I get high, and I take a guitar off the wall, and I fool around. Hello? Yoo-hoo! Is there anybody out there waiting to see if it comes? It can't come if you don't make a space for it, so I do it every night. And what happens is I do. I get a scrap of a strange thing that happened in the tuning, and oh, look what I found. Or I wind up with a thought that crosses my mind, and I write it down. I learned that from Johnny. It's really a great thing she did. She said, write that down. I said, what? She says, what you just said, what I just say. Whatever it was you said, it was good. <laughs> and you do that a lot. You, you write, you, you think up these phrases, and, you, and they're really good, and, and if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. Click. If you don't write it down, it didn't happen. It never existed. So I read it all. If I get three words in a row I like, I write them down. <laughs> and then I fool around. I keep files of scraps. What I have changed, and it's made a drastic difference in my writing, I always wrote every once in a while with somebody else. There were wooden ships with stills and Wooden ships on the water, very free and easy. Easy, you know the way it's supposed to be. Silver on the shoreline, let us be. Talking about song with Joni. Every once in a while I write with somebody. I do it almost all the time now because the other person always thinks of something that you didn't. It's as if you had seven colors on your palette and you were a painter and you started working with another painter who had another different seven. All of a sudden you got 14 colors and the painting gets better. Early on in a competitive band, uh, my song's better than your song. Ha. I can be more complex than you do here, deja vu. <laughs> so much more fun to work with somebody like Becca Stevens or Michelle Willis or Michael League or James Raymond, my son James. I wrote a great song with Michael McDonald the other day. When you work with other people, there's that moment and you spark with each other. And they say, well, what if you, and you go, that's the third verse. It's fun. It's a joy to create that way. You have to get your ego out of the way a lot, and considering the size of my ego, that's some serious moving grade. <laughs> but if you do it with people you like, who you have respect for, and I have enormous respect for the people I'm writing. My God, they're good. It's kind of a thing of opening yourself up, not having it be all about you. Some way, somehow,
back in the dark days of addiction, when you got over that, you once told me that what scared you to death in prison wasn't prison life. It was the fact that you had gotten to the point where you couldn't write songs anymore. And that bottleneck of 35-odd years ago is a distant memory. Hard that it took that to get free of it. Truthfully, if I were faced with the choice again of being a junkie again or going to prison again, I'd go to prison. Because being a junkie is a prison you carry around with you. You don't get out. You die or you go crazy or you die or you go crazy. <laughs> or you quit. It's the only other option. <laughs> so I'm glad I went to prison. I needed it. They had to lock me up. I was seriously addicted. But it worked. It wasn't fun. Texas for God's yeah, sake. Hey, pictures. rock star, how you feel now? <laughs> hey, Vern, he's throwing up again. Look at this, this son of a bitch. Hey, rock star. <laughs> Bet you wish he's outside now getting laid and everything, huh? Don't you, huh? Leave me fucking alone. Hey, Vern, he talks. <laughs> I worked in the mattress factory. I made some of the worst mattresses on earth. Was mistaken Only reflections Of a shadow That I saw Remember My Name is a great title. But I'm compelled to remind people that it's not only poignant, but it's derived from the title of your very first solo album back in the day, If I Could Only Remember My Name. That was a touchstone album for a lot of us. That agglomeration of Nash and Neil was there and Joni and the members of the Airplane and the Grateful Dead and Santana. Above all those people, Jerry. Garcia, running the show. Here's how that happened. We were making Deja Vu. And my girlfriend got killed. She took off to take the cat to the vet and never came home. And I had no ability to deal with that at all. Nobody had prepped me. I loved her. She was dead. So I wound up sitting on the floor crying a lot in those deja vu sessions. And when deja vu was done, I had, didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. So I stayed in the studio. It's the only place I was comfortable. They had a bunch of songs. They'd only asked me for two. So I stayed in there. Whoever would show up, that was the band that night. And it was Garcia every night. The kind man. He knew I was hurting. And he knew that I needed desperately to do what I was doing. Keep my head above water. So he came every goddamn night. You know, Jerry, man, he's like his music falling off of him and running out of his hair and leaking out of his nose and creeping off of his feet. He would do anything to get music to happen. He would, as I have said, lick the notes off the floor. <laughs> he would do whatever it took to make it happen. It was magic to him and it was magic to me. And if the two of us could sit down with two guitars, it happened every time. Every time. We had a game we would play where Garcia and I would look at each other and get a pulse going on. And we'd play a note. Only neither of us knew what note the other guy was going to play. So it was an accident. Uh, uh, 
And each time was a new chord. And we had no control over where that chord was going to be. And it got so good that at the front of Kids and Dogs, we're doing that, that exact game. And you hit one that was so good, Jerry starts laughing while we were trying to record. You can hear him do it. It was like that. I had those songs, and Cantor would come, and Grace would come a lot. Jerry, Mickey, Raleigh, Cassidy. Jack Cassidy, what a motherfucker of a bass player. Excuse me for the bad language. Kalkinen. And they all just came, you know, because it was fun. There was a bunch of really good people, and they knew I wanted it really badly, and that I needed it really badly. There's no rules. I'd swear there was somebody here. That's one of the strangest pieces of music I've ever even heard, let alone made. It wasn't received well at the time. But it's got this second life. Now it's heralded. A few years ago, the Vatican's official newspaper, <laughs> the Vatican's official newspaper listed it as the number two pop album of all time. I didn't That's even know that. not the, the funniest part of the story. <laughs> That's a very funny part of the story, but it gets much funnier. The number three album was a Pink Floyd album. <laughs> Somebody must have, I don't know who would have done such a thing, copied it and sent it to David Gilmore who sent back, damn it, exclamation, exclamation, <laughs> which I laughed over for several weeks. <laughs> he has a great sense of humor, and he thought it was just funny as shit. We both did. What in God's name do they think they were doing? I didn't even know the Vatican had a, had a newspaper, paper. much less a let's, music let's, guy making lists. Yeah, yeah, you know, it freaked us all out. <laughs> I mean, it's probably one of the least freaky things about the Vatican, but it freaked us out totally. We thought, That's... this is so off the wall. Cross, what's your favorite musicians, Joe? I like the one about the drums, the drums. We can hear the drums. It's not really bad until the drums stop. Oh, why? Does that mean the natives will attack? No, no. Then comes the bass solo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one I tell more often is, how do you know if the drum riser is level? How? The jewel comes out of both sides evenly. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Cross. <laughs> Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization. 
relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C-O-L-O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.